Hebrews chapter 4, verse 6, put it in the context. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day. Today, saying through David, so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. We're going to pause right there and say that that is God's word to some of you this morning. That you're already putting up a barrier, you're already putting a callus over your sensitivities, and you've determined you don't want the Spirit of God to speak to your heart. To you, he is saying, this is a crucial day today. Dave was just six months older than I am. The, the urgency and the brevity of life is very real. If God is speaking to you today, don't harden your heart. Four, if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and it's active. It is sharper than a two-edged sword. It pierces to the division of the soul and of the spirit, of the joints and of the marrow, and it discerns the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, and yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive, number one, mercy, and number two, find grace to help in a timely manner, in a time of need. That's probably the one thing that every individual looks for in their life at some moment, is someone who is sympathetic, someone who genuinely understands, someone who authentically cares enough to slow down long enough to listen and to consider. And when they hear, that they would even go so far as to feel. I read that text and I couldn't help but think of the book of Job in the 23rd chapter. After Job's supposed friends had ripped him from one side to the other. Job finally says in Job 23, 2, Today my complaint is bitter, my hand is heavy on account of my groaning. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come even to his seat. I would lay my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would know what he would answer me and understand what he would say to me. Would he contend with me? in the greatness of his power. Job desperately wanted an audience with God. 
because he had found that in his pseudo-friends there was no genuine sympathy, there was no mercy, and there was no compassion. Here we are hundreds of years later, and the apostle, the unidentified apostle, writes to the suffering saints in Rome, living fearfully in the shadow of the Caesar's throne room, and he is saying, there is someone who cares. There is someone who understands. There's someone who feels. And you do have the privilege of an audience with God. That's the text. I'm preaching this all as one message today simply because as I was leaving the funeral home yesterday, I told Linda, I said, this is calling for two or three sermons. And she said, nobody wants to hear that many on this passage. Pack it into one. So here we go. We're going to unpack it in these four points. The first one is there are in this text four exhortations. Secondly, you will find that there are three unique intersections. Thirdly, you'll find that there are two affirmations And then finally, when you're through the text, you'll find out there is a singular invitation. Let's do the best that we can with the time that we have. He says four times. One old author, it's kind of a dad joke, has said that this is kind of like the salad bar of God's buffet. Four times he uses the word, let us. Verse verse 1, chapter 4, let us fear, lest any of you should come to fail to reach it. Let us fear. There has been a repeated caution given to those who have professed to have trusted in Christ. They have confessed their hope and their confidence in His finished work on their behalf, but they are beginning to lose their grip on their faith. And He is saying to them, He said, let us fear. Secondly, in verse 11, He says to us, He says, then let us strive to enter that rest. It's almost a contradiction in term. Labor to rest. Do your diligence. And just simply, and you've heard great preaching on that, so there's no need to go back over the tried and true terror. But I think John chapter 6, verse 29, Jesus spoke to this when the crowd came to him the day after he had fed the 5,000, and they said in verse 29, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. Labor to believe in him. Labor to enter the rest. Summarize it this way. True salvation will not only save you from spiritual death, but it will give to you the gift of spiritual life, and that is eternal. Make it a priority. Strive for, press toward, make it certain that you have believed in the only one who can bring rest to your soul. And then we come down to verse 14. So then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us, there's the third one, hold fast our confession. Let us hang on to that thing that we once thought we believed, or as C.S. Lewis put it, faith is the art of holding on to things your reason has once accepted in spite of your changing moods. 
Circumstances are different today. Environment's different today. But he is saying, hang on to the thing that you knew you were convinced of in the beginning. Since then, we have a great high priest. We're going to unpack that in a few minutes. The, the priesthood of Christ is a theme that, that literally weaves its way continually through this. So one of the reasons I was willing to try to pack this into one message and not three is that this whole theme of priesthood is going to come up again and again, especially in chapter 7, chapter 8, and chapter 9. But here he says, since then, because of the reality, the fact we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, it's very significant. He's trying to identify this one who represents God before us and us before God. And he describes him as he is great, as in comparison and contrast to every high priest that had preceded him. In the 14th verse, it says, who has passed through the heavens is a significant statement because earthly priests, again, we'll look at it in a minute, but it, it, the earthly priests, they would go through three particular gates or doors on their way into the presence of the holiness of God. They would, first of all, go through the gate or the door into the outer court of the tabernacle or the outer court of the temple. And the first thing they would run into there is the burning altar where the sacrifices for sins were given and the, the laver where they would ceremonially wash their hands in recognition that we are unworthy and we are defiled, but we're coming into the presence of a holy one who is unstained. And then they would go through a second door, which would be the curtain that would lead them into the double-sized room called the, the holy place. And in there, there was some furniture with the table of showbread, and there was the uh, incense altar and those things. But there was one more gate they had to enter through, uh, one more curtain they had to go through before they could stand in the presence of an awe-inspiring holy God. And that was the veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. Laced into this text is Leviticus chapter 16. Leviticus chapter 16 is the instructions on the Day of Atonement, the annual event where they would take two goats and they would cast the lots and they would, they, one of the goats would be the sacrifice goat and he would lose his life through the shedding of his blood with the slitting of his throat and the other one would be the scapegoat and the priest would name the sins of the people with his hands upon its head and then another priest, an underpriest, would lead it into the wilderness and release it to go into the wild, thus bearing the sins of the people away from the camp. On that day of atonement, and only on that day of atonement, the high priest would represent the people before a holy God. But he would only do it after he had, first of all, offered sacrifices for his own sins, because he was just like they were. He was imperfect, and he was fallible. And he, first of all, had to deal with the issues, his stuff in his own life, before he was qualified to stand before a holy God on behalf of the people and their stuff in their life. He's describing this one as one who is a great high priest, but this one has not passed through the outer court curtain and through the curtain into the holy place and finally the veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. But this one passed through the three heavens. There's the atmosphere around us. There's the heavens that are beyond that, and then as Paul called it in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, into the 
third heaven, which is the dwelling place of God. We have an invitation to come to one who has passed through all three heavens into the very presence of a holy God. And his one is identified here as Jesus, the Son of God. So he combines his humanity with his deity. Jesus is the name that was given to him upon his birth. Matthew chapter 1, he said to Joseph, your, your spouse is going to have a son and you're going to call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sin. It's his human name. He is our Savior. That one who has passed through the three heavens and is now in the presence of a holy, unstained, uncompromising God is none other than a human. He's a man who represents men. But on top of that, he at the same time is deity. He is the Son of God. In light of the reality that we have a priest that is greater than any priest that has preceded in light of that, let us hold fast the confession of our hope. Hold fast to the thing that you once believed. Hold fast to the thing that you were once convinced of. That no a matter of many works, good deeds you were able to accomplish, no matter what effort that you exerted at all, you always fell short of measuring up to his uncompromising standard. But then you discovered that there was one that he had sent and that one was willing to pay the penalty for your sin. He died in your place. He, he erased the record of your sins so that when he invites you into the presence of his Father, the holy, uncompromising God, you can arrive there without fear. You were once convinced of that. Why are you wavering in uncertainty? Circumstances should not drive you from your living hope. So he exhorts us, hold fast. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who in every respect has been tempted just as we are. It's going to wrap this exhortation up with a command or an invitation to draw near. I want to look at that extendedly, but right now I'll simply put it this way. A true salvation frees you from religious rituals and it welcomes you into an eternal, intimate relationship. Draw near. Why? So that I can get a whole list of do's and don'ts again? So remember, I was in eighth grade when my father accepted the first pastorate of the Brian Church in Cozad. And uh, we moved in on Saturday and the fledgling congregation gathered in the parsonage basement on Sunday morning for worship, which meant we had to get up early and roll up our sleeping bags and clean the basement so that the church could gather there. And then somebody representing the fellowship arrived and they introduced my father as the first pastor of this new congregation and welcomed his family as members. Now, nobody talked to us about that. Maybe mom and dad talked about it while we were sleeping in the back seat as we moved from South Dakota to Coast. I don't know. But I don't ever remember anybody saying, you're going to become members of this new church. But to initiate us into the membership, he read a list of 10 things we would not do. Basically was, if anybody was having fun doing it, you can't do it. 
And if they're having fun doing it, you have to stop them from having fun doing it. And it was just one of those moments like, oh, wow. So my early Christian experience was all wrapped up into things I could not do. It seemed like the only things I could do were the things nobody wanted to do and the things that they were having fun doing. That's what he's talking about here. He has liberated us from a list of rules and rituals. And instead, he has invited us in to relationship. That's what he's talking about, not let go of your confession, that I have found in Jesus an intimate friend. And not because I deserve it, but because he has chosen me to be his friend and took care of the mess that I had created with my life beforehand so that it was holy and acceptable for him to give himself to me. Now, in this text, and the reason that I struggled with it is I thought there's a whole message on these four exhortations, and then there's, there's three messages on these three intersections in the text, but as, as Linda said, you don't want to listen to all that, so we're going to go right here. And first of all, we see here that Jesus is a prophet. Chapter 1, verse 1, he's spoken in many ways and many times in times past, but now he has spoken through his Son, who is the final word. Jesus is this living word that pierces, that divides between the bone and the marrow, that understands the depths, the depravity, and the need of the human heart. He is a prophet. He is the living word of God. John chapter 1 is all built on that. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. All things came into being. Apart from him, nothing came into being that has come in to be. And then that word became flesh. He became a prophet. But he was more than that. According to this text, he is also a king. Let us then, verse 16, with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. And see, being an American, where we have the freedom to decide every four years who will sit in the Oval Office, we have, I have no comprehension of, of a kingdom where there is a non-elected king that sits on a throne and has unlimited autocratic sovereign authority and control. That's just, that's just not even on my radar screen. But I started looking at the word throne, and I found out that it appears in the Scripture 959 times. I found it interesting that when God created the nation of Israel, He told them, don't don't appoint yourself a king. It's a theocracy. I will be your king. We have a throne, and there will be those who will lead and serve you, but the people were okay with that until Samuel's sons didn't follow Samuel's lifestyle and Samuel's convictions, and they said, now you've been a great prophet. We've really appreciated your ministry, but we want our own king. The nations around us all have a king. God had warned them back in the Deuteronomy. He says, you know, when you appoint a king, he's going to take your daughters to serve him. He's going to take your sons to fight for him. He's going to take your money to support himself. But they wanted a king anyway. The throne, the, the best illustration I could find of the throne was found in the book of Esther, chapter 4, 
where it says, And all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. And then she says, Tell Uncle Mordecai, as for me, I've not been called to come before the king. This idea of a throne, this idea of a sovereign authority, it did not communicate an attitude of kindness or care, but it was a frightening thing. You see, this little congregation, as Chuck Swindoll says, this gathering of homeless people in the shadow of the Caesar's courtroom live in fear of the one who sat upon the throne. The throne is the symbol of ultimate life and death authority. The book of Revelation, when you read through it, it refers to the throne 46 times. There ultimately is going to be one who is seated on the throne who will have all rule, power, and authority. He will be the king of kings and lord of lords. Guess what? He is the king of kings and lord of lords. And the one that is sitting there is none other than the lamb that was slain. When he introduces his royalty here. The book of Hebrews references it four times. In chapter 1, verse 8, he said, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your king. Total contradiction. Antithesis to everything they knew about kings and rulers. There was one who sat upon the throne, the ultimate seat of sovereign authority. But he was governed by a character of uprightness, righteousness. Chapter 4, verse 16, it's called a throne of grace. In chapter 8, verse 1, he says, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne, the final authority, the sovereign rule over all of the majesty in heaven. And in chapter 12, verse 2, it came up again when he says, who for the joy, speaking of Jesus, set before him, endured the cross, despised the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. His symbol of authority. The reality is, though, that the people were conditioned to fear the throne. On a bike ride a few weeks ago, I talked to one of our brothers about the difference between European governments and American governments. In America, I was raised to believe that our government served and made decisions based on my best interest and looked out for me and were concerned for me. But he spoke of European governments who were in it for themselves and the people didn't trust them as having their interest at heart. That, that's more of the biblical model of a throne, that there is a Nebuchadnezzar who is flaunting himself, admiring the great work that he did in Daniel chapter 4, and does not realize for seven years that there is a king of kings and lord of lords who is on a throne above his. And he finally, when he came to his sanity, he said only he rules forever, and he puts men on thrones and he tears them down. So when you're speaking in terms of the throne, he's writing to them and he is saying, be encouraged. Though you were living in the frightening shadow of the Caesar's throne, 
a place of life and death, a, a place that not any one of you would ever dare enter. And if you even made it into the courts of the palace, you would not take a step forward until you were summoned because it could cost you your life. There is a throne that does not have to be feared. There's a throne that has a father on it with his arms open wide. To that, he said, draw near. And then we come to the third. So Jesus is the prophet. He's the final word from God. Jesus is also the king. The end of the story will tell us that ultimately he will be seated upon the throne. That's why I said in the book of Revelation, 46 times he speaks of the throne. Almost every one of those is a reference to Christ's throne, his ultimate rule and authority. But between those two, there is another ministry that he fulfills, and that is he is a priest. Here he is called a great high priest. That theme will tie your study of Hebrews together. I just selected a few of the key texts. Chapter 1, verse 3, he says, and after making purification for sin, the role of the priest was to receive the sacrifices, the offerings from the people, and to offer them on the altar and take the blood and offer the blood of the sacrifice to the Father. Thereby sins were cleansed and they were covered for a season. This one made purification for sins. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Chapter 2, verse 17, it says, So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. A few weeks ago, we said it was unheard of. Most priests were just kind of dispassionate. They were kind of disconnected from the people. They didn't look in their eyes. They didn't see the fear. They didn't see the sadness. They didn't see the sorrow. They just took next, next, next. It became a ritual to them. But we have one who is both merciful and faithful. You can count on him. Chapter 5, verse 1 says, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relationship to God. The role of the high priest was not to serve himself, but it was to serve God in relationship to God's chosen people. Chapter 7, verse 1, we'll spend some time talking about Melchizedek, who is the king of Salem, here introduced in the Old Testament, Genesis chapter 14, for the first time, as a priest of the Most High God. Chapter 7, verse 28, says it this way, For it is fitting that we should have such a high priest described as holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. There didn't have to be an annual day of atonement. Because this priest not only offered the sacrifice, this priest himself was the sacrifice. Chapter 8, verse 1. Now the point in which we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. He is a minister in the holy place, in the true tent that the Lord set up not man. The earthly tabernacle was just simply a shadow. It was just a replication of the greater tabernacle where our high priest ultimately would serve. Chapter 9, verse 6. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. That is the courts. 
But in the second only, the high priest goes, and that is into the holy place and the holy of holies, and he did that once a year, but not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. And when he went in there, he did not stay long. The high priest only went in there long enough to bring the blood and to spread it on the mercy seat where God agreed that he would look upon it and he would forgive their sins. He had bells on his robe so that he continued to move so that they did not know if God did not accept their sacrifices that he would strike him dead while he was in there. Non-biblical history tells us that they tied a rope around his ankle so should the bells stop ringing, they would drag him out without penetrating that holy place. Chapter 9, verse 11, when Christ appeared as a high priest, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. Chapter 9, verse 24, Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf Turn, if you would, to chapter 10. I want to read extensively from chapter 10. Notice verse 11. Now every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Remember, there is no seat, there's no chair in the tabernacle because the work was never done. They could never rest with accomplished. Yet he is waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Notice the 19th verse. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and the living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and with our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who has promised is faithful. We have this high priest, he says in verse 14, who has passed through the heavens, the atmosphere around us, the space in between, and then finally into God's very presence. He is Jesus, a man. He is the Son of God. He is divine. For that reason, we should hang on to our confession of hope. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. We have one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, and yet without sin. There were a host of prophets who spoke on God's behalf to the people of God. They called them to repentance. They called them to faithfulness. They called them to true worship. They had a series of kings. Generation after generation would be on the throne and come down. God said to David, he said, I'm going to appoint one to sit on your throne and there will be a son of David ruling forever and ever your promised throne is a forever throne. And then we had a series of priests. 
You see, they were human like everyone else, so they would serve for a while, and then they would die, and another high priest would be appointed in their place. But there was no situation where the prophet and the king were one and the same. There was no situation where the king and the priest were one and the same. And in fact, in 2 Chronicles chapter 26, probably one of the greatest kings, second probably only to Solomon, Uzziah, and you read the legacy of his leadership, but he decided that it wasn't enough for him to simply be the sovereign authority over the nation, providing for and protecting his people, but he also wanted to be the go-between between his people and God. And so he himself went into the temple and he began to offer the sacrifices, to offer the incense, to burn the prayers for the people. And the priest came and confronted the king, the sovereign. That's a dangerous thing to do when you go to the king without permission. But they risked their lives in order to confront him because they said, that is not your calling. And God affirmed their confrontation by striking him with leprosy. And probably the second greatest king in Israel's history died as a leper. The tombstone said, here lies a leper. All of the legacy destroyed by an act of arrogance. But there was one, only one, who was qualified to be the prophet, to be the king, and to be the priest. And that is the person of Jesus. So in verse 16 it says, so then let us draw near draw near. It's a frightening thing. Nobody wanted to come to the throne. Even, even Esther, when she was summoned in, when the king saw her in the courts and she had approached further than she should have, but still at a safe distance, she was still frightened when he invited her in. And yet here he is inviting us to come forward. Let us then with confidence draw near. How is it that sinful, unqualified people can, without hesitation, enter into the presence of an uncompromising holy God? And the answer is simply this. It's because their sins have been forgiven. The thing that prevents them from being there has been taken care of. Chapter 7, verse 25. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. There are some fools who are charged with felonies and other kinds of offenses who arrogantly think that they will be their own lawyers and they will represent themselves in the courts. Seldom do any of them end up with satisfying verdicts at the end of their self-defense. But I can promise you this, if you choose to be your own lawyer in the presence of a holy God at his glorious throne, the verdict is guilty as charged. But we have one who when we fail, and we do, when we sin, and we do, when we stumble, and we do, right there, at the king's right hand is one who pleads our case on our behalf. And he's the one that says, don't look at Rempel and what he just did. He stands before you robed in my righteousness. I've already paid the penalty for that offense. 
but he is able to save to the uttermost. Those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Chapter 10, verse 1, for the law can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. There has to be something other than a ritual. Chapter 10, verse 22, since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Chapter 11, verse 6, without faith, it is impossible to please him. Whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Jesus' half-brother James put it this way in his fourth chapter, the eighth verse. Submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Why am I drawing near to God? Because the battle in the world of temptation is intense. And my abilities and powers and resources are limited. I need someone that is greater than the downward pole of sin to rescue me. Resist the devil. He'll flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. You see, this draw near to God thing is the narrative story that holds the Bible together. It started in Genesis 1 when God said, let us, plural, make man in our plural image. In the image of God, he made them male and female. Chapter 2, he put them in this Martha Stewart, kind of kicked it up a notch thing called Eden, a garden. And he says, I'm going to provide for you everything that you need, and all I'm asking you to do is don't eat from that particular tree. The day you eat of that tree, you will certainly die. Genesis chapter 3, Satan says to the woman, God didn't really say. And she says, yeah, what God said is you're not to eat of it or touch it. Well, he didn't say that, but she's always perverting the word of God. And rather than lead his family, Adam just stood by and listened. And in the end of chapter 3, God drives the couple with whom he had had intimate face-to-face daily fellowship, drives them from the garden. And the rest of the story from Genesis chapter 4 onward is a loving father, God continually seeking those who are distant from him and inviting them to come home. And the longing in the heart of every human being is to have that intimacy again with God. But he is holy and they are unholy. So you've got such great portraits through the scripture. You've got Jacob desperately wrestling with whatever it is. And the sun begins to come up and he realizes, I am wrestling with something that is greater than a man. But he says, I am not going to let you go until you bless me. He was willing to see the face of God and die in order to hang on. You got Moses when the burning bush tells him to take off his sandals. So he's standing barefoot in the desert because it's holy ground. You got Moses on the terrifying mountain where the people said, whoa, don't let God talk to us anymore. You go talk to God and you come and tell us what God has said. Even the psalmist said, in the end, I will behold his face. I will be with him. The story of the scriptures from Genesis 4 to the very last chapter when he finally says, and there will be no more death 
There'll be no more suffering. There'll be no more sorrow. There'll be no more separation. I will be their God, and they will see my face. The longing to be able to draw near to a holy God, and yet there is a tear between us. How in the world is that going to become possible? It is only possible when a holy God became fully a man. I was just reflecting on it this week, is that this Jesus who spoke the universe into existence had to learn to speak as an infant. He had to learn to say, Dada and Mommy, and all. This one who walked with Enoch in Genesis chapter 5 had to learn to sit up, to scoot on his little diaper, and then to crawl, and then to stumble and fall and get up and walk again. The one who is the author of the very scriptures that we read had to go through a life process of learning how to read and how to write. This one who knows us said this, chapter 5, verse 2, he can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Or chapter 5, verse 7, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and he was heard because of his great cries. We have a high priest who knows. The one who is there when we come to the throne of grace has been there where we are. He understands your weakness. He understands the tenacious, consistent, downward pull of sin and temptation. C.S. Lewis said it this way, we will never find out the strength of the veil or the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he is the only man who never yielded to temptation, is the only man who knows to the full what temptation truly means. The only complete realist. When we get to chapter 12 in a few months or a couple of years, <laughs> we will read this. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. Let us then with confidence draw near to the intimidating, frightening throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of needs. He knows and he cares. But his one invitation is this. Come. Come for mercy. Mercy is the kindness of God that meets me in my past failures. Covers my offenses and sins. Come to the throne of grace to receive a covering for your past failures and come to the throne of grace for grace which meets my present and my future needs. To hear his voice in the midst of your struggle as he spoke to the Apostle Paul, the great church planter and evangelist, when he said, I've asked you three times to remove this thorn from my flesh. And he hears the voice of the Spirit say, My grace 
is sufficient for you. Some summary points. Christ came into the world to make a way for us to come into the presence of God, a holy, uncompromising God, without being consumed in our sin by his holiness. 1 Peter 3.18, Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God, draw near in confidence. Faith brings rest only when faith rests in Christ Jesus alone. How do I find this promised rest? By faith in Christ alone. He shed and applied, his shed blood and applied blood has so completely covered my sin and erased my guilt that my conscience can rest in complete peace even in his holy presence. A.W. Tozier put it very simply. Don't pity yourself. Don't be afraid to tell God your troubles. He knows all about your troubles. Our fellow sufferer still retains a fellow feeling for our pains and still remembers in the skies his own tears, his own agonies, and his own cries. Though he is now at the right hand of the Father Almighty, sitting crowned in glory, awaiting, of course, that great coronation day that is yet to come. But though he is there, and though they cry all around him, worthy is the Lamb, worthy is the Lamb. He hasn't forgotten us. He hasn't forgotten the nails in his hands, the tears on his face, the agonies and the cries. He knows everything about you. He knows. When the doctor hates to tell you what's wrong with you and your friends come and try to unnaturally encourage you, he knows. The question is this. What hope do helpless sinners have for entering in to the rest of Jesus Christ? And the answer is they are offered free access by faith alone in the throne of grace. The mercy seat has become the throne of grace where true rest is found. All fear is gone because, as Jesus said, it is finished.